Welcome to Excavate, uncovering our place in God's story. I'm Heather Strong-Moore. And I'm Jamie Dawn. Today, we're continuing in our summer short series with Job's Daughters. We'll take a second look at the book of Job overall, and perhaps a perspective that puts Job's daughters in a fuller picture of his life. We'll also look at how Job names his daughters and how that might speak to his encounters with God. Let's dig in. In order to see Job's daughters and their names fully, we need to look at the context of Job's life overall. So the daughters come into the picture at the very end of the story, and there's a lot that happens before that. Job is often seen as a way of understanding suffering and what it looks like to meet God in the midst of suffering. And I think what part of what we're excited about today is taking a second look, because I think Job, sometimes the message of Job really is to not have a formulaic view of suffering. And yet I do think that sometimes Job becomes that, like, see, this is just what happens. God blesses and God takes away. So get over it kind of a thing. So I'm excited to dig into this book a little bit more to see that picture maybe with fresh eyes. Yeah, it's chronologically, they believe the very first written book in the Bible, in the Old Testament. So chronologically, it was actually probably written before um, Genesis and Exodus and all of those. So it's one of the most ancient works. And in some ways, it's actually written like a play. I don't, I wouldn't pres- like ascribe to then assuming that it's fiction. I do think Job is a real person and the rest of the Bible treats Job like a real person. So that's also worth noting at the beginning that there has been question of whether Job is a historical figure or whether this is sort of an allegory. I personally think he's real (laughs) because other people um, in the New Testament as well refer to Job as just a historical member of the community of faith. So the book itself is very interesting and there's essentially a series of monologues back and forth between Job and his friends primarily, and then between God and Job. So it is interesting, especially for anyone that might be interested in theater or playwriting or just literature. Job is a pretty unique structure and a unique book in in the Bible in that regard. Yeah, that's really good. And we see a lot actually about creation. So it's fun to think about it in that context of how early the book was and that people would have looked to this for kind of clues about God's nature in the midst of creation and what that speaks to. Mm -hmm. So Job is seen as a very righteous man, someone who loves God, fears God, and it really sees that as a huge part of his identity. He's known for that in his community. His friends know that about him. And his righteousness actually made him a target for the enemy, Satan. There's this whole like dialogue with God and God allows him to target Job with these sufferings in order to see if Job would deny the Lord. So as a result, uh, God allows that suffering and Job loses nearly everything that he loves. He loses his kids, his wealth in the form of his 
livestock, his farm, and really his own body and his health. He has these experiences of his own body being (laughs) tormented by pain. And the one person that is consistent throughout this story in his family is his wife. And then his friends are there as well. And so his friends ask him basically, what did you do to deserve this? And see that kind of formulaic understanding of if you are righteous, good things will happen. If you are not righteous, that's when suffering comes in. And Job clearly has this understanding as well. He's really wrestling through that. And his wife definitely has that understanding. And so she's basically like, Job, curse God, move on from this. And let's go on from our story. But really, Job is content to wrestle this out with the Lord. And his friends are the ones who are really offering him. It would be like those pious friends who try and come to you and say, everything happens for a reason, or God won't give you anything you can't handle or something like that. And just like, try to tie a bow on it and help you move on without actually wrestling through it. That's really the picture of Job's friends throughout this. And Job, on the other hand, is like, content to have these conversations with God and really in some ways, almost arguments. Uh, There's these, like you said, Heather, these monologues where they're going back and forth. And I think those monologues say so much about Job's comfort with the Lord to really be able to bring those things to him. Like, this is who I am. Like I was righteous before you. And then for God to respond with such clarity and I think this is where I kind of want to hone in because so often we see people interpret these passages where God is responding to Job's monologues towards him and God is reminding Job of who he is by rehearsing the creation in some ways. And he's like, Job, were you there when the I created the mountains to have snow on their caps? And were you there when I created the waters? And I think the interpretation often goes along the lines of basically like, Job, I'm God, I'm big, you're small, I'm smart, you're dumb, basically. Like, it's almost as if we see God saying these things to Job from a very harsh tone. And I think that makes sense in the context of this is a book about suffering. This is a book where we see really difficult things. And so we, it almost correlates with we would see God as this harsh figure. And so then we see his responses to Job with a bit of harshness. But I I personally am indebted to Ellen Davis, a, an Old Testament scholar, for helping me see this with a new light. And it's really, it's made this one of my favorite books actually now, because we see the way that God talks about creation is very different than this understanding of like, I just want to make you see that I'm really big and you're small. Instead, it's very full of wonder. It's kind of whimsical. It's like, even that illustration of like the snow-capped mountains is this poetic understanding of creation. He says at one point, like, Job, I made it rain on the earth with not a person in it. And it, we get from some of those pictures a picture of who God is, that he, God is reminding Job that 
I do things sometimes just because it's wild and like it's my creative delight to make it rain on the earth even though there's not a person in it and he uses these illustrations of these very large animals that we kind of actually don't have a direct translation for in modern understanding we're not 100% sure of what these were Uh, and so he references the behemoth and the leviathan and they're these wild animals and he says basically like they cannot be tamed but I made them and I I appreciate that about them and he specifically says about these large animals that God made them to teach us about his ways. And so we kind of get from this and all these other pictures of creation that God is inviting us into an understanding of who he is that's full of mystery, that it's this way of understanding God is not to be tamed. And so he made his creation to look like that so that we would understand who God is and the creation and all its vast array is meant to speak to the nature of God, which is that it's wild. It's fun. There's, you know, I often think about like the rainforest so full of color fish that for no reason have these patterns and beautiful colors on them. There's no reason for it other than God's creative delight. And so throughout the book of Job in these monologues, He is reminding Job, like, I am bigger than you. I'm beyond your understanding. But he does it in a way that points to how wild and creative and kind of untamed he is. Yeah, those are such good observations. I love that. It is interesting. I don't think that we would often turn to the book of Job for insight on creation and kind of the creation account. But there, God's God's response to Job is multiple chapters long towards the end of the book. And so, yeah, would definitely commend that to y'all with new eyes that it's not only about suffering, but is also, as we said, the first written account of the ways that God is describing creation and God's intent and purpose in, in calling forth all things. Um, yeah, I definitely, I, I totally agree with you, Jamie, that I think the mistake of Job's friends is trying to explain away what has happened in pretty trite ways, often victim blaming, (laughs) often blaming Job of maybe that you had unconfessed sin. Maybe you didn't make sacrifices on behalf of your kids. And that's why God struck them down or something like they, they go pretty harsh in, in their trying to find explanations and formulas. And we've talked about this in other episodes, but really what's at the heart of trying to make life formulaic is control is trying to think that we can be in control and trying to make life predictable that if I do this, then this will happen. And if I don't do this, then this will happen. So I'd better make sure I do that because as humans, it's very scary and vulnerable to not be in control all the time. And I think that's the answer within the answer that God is giving Job is you can't control me. And because the creation itself reflects me in its power and magnitude and inability to control it. That's, that's how you need to make some peace with the way that life is as well. That life also reflects our inability to control God. 
And that can be hard. That's again, it's scary. It's vulnerable. That's the part that I think can make us feel small or insignificant, perhaps of, gosh, I don't have as much power as I thought I did. And yeah, I don't think we are small to God. I don't think we are insignificant to God by any means. It's just that life is hard. Things happen sometimes for a reason. Sometimes we have no explanation. And that can be really difficult as bystanders to sit with someone who's experiencing something that has no explanation because we want to make them feel better and we want to make ourselves feel better. (laughs) And that's often our motivation in trying to find some kind of explanation is that we want to feel a sense of control and we don't want to have to grapple with our own mortality or powerlessness. But that's actually the invitation in the book of Job when we are going through suffering or just unexplained circumstances to rest in the mystery of God. And then the invitation for those around someone who might be suffering to also find peace in mystery and just walk with people in mystery. Yeah, that's so good. One of my favorite things that God says is that he rebukes the friends for the way that they spoke to Job. And he says, Job has spoken accurately about me. And I just love that. Like that's often a prayer that I will go to is that I would speak and understand God accurately, that I would see God for all that God's self really is. And that I would have that accuracy of understanding. And I think that's such a powerful moment, probably for Job to have God rebuke his friends that he's like, this is not the way you treat someone in the midst of suffering. And actually, there's a scene where the friends have to bring their offerings to Job kind of as this act of their own repentance from their ways of understanding God and the world and their words towards him. And basically, like that moment is a hinge point for the rest of the the healing part of the story, which I think is so powerful, too. And so I think it's it's such a powerful moment that they are instructed to bring this offering. And I think especially what you said, Heather, about their specific question to Job of like, did you not make enough like offerings on behalf of your children for them to then have to come and repent and like bring an offering towards Job is this full circle picture. And we see that a lot in how God works in the book of Job, that there's really these full circle moments that his the healing that God brings is very intentional and particular for Job. So I don't think that's an accident. I think it's very meaningful. And we'll see that even in like the numbers of livestock that come. Yeah, yeah, that's such a good observation. And I also think some just some important elements of Job, again, when we think about it as likely the very first written book of the Bible, that Job has multiple references to needing a savior, needing a redeemer, needing a mediator. And I think that's also very foundational to our understanding as humans of as fallen humans who are living in this season of the fallen, a fallen world before the resurrection, that part of our suffering reminds us it's not manipulation to force us to think this, but it reminds us that this isn't all there is. And we hope for something bigger than this. And we need help 
<laughs> um, I, I can't find, I can't remember off the top of my head. So I'll put the reference in the show notes, but there's a moment where Job kind of cries out and says, I wish I had a mediator to stand between me and God. And it, he's, he's crying out for Jesus, for, for what would be Jesus. And I don't think that Job knows that necessarily, but he senses, I need something to stand between me and the judgment of God, because I know that I am fallen and those in my life are fallen as well. And we need covering, we need spiritual healing. Um, and also then in Job 19.25, he says, for I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. That makes me emotional. That is such a profound statement of belief. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> um, this is kind of in the, this is in the middle of the book. Job is pretty long. <laughs> I think it goes to, yeah, 42 chapters. So he's only halfway through his grief and his process. And that is such a, an, Oh yeah. Just a magnificent statement of, I know that God has something out there for us. I know that there is something in store. I know that this can't be truly all that God wants for us. And that's, I, I love that he's going to keep struggling after that. And I think that's such a beautiful expression of in the midst of grief and confusion and doubt that we can still have these moments of, I know that God has something. I may not know what it is yet. And I may still be struggling for a while. And I can still have these moments of belief and hope that will carry me through. Yeah, that's so good. So we do uh, see a turn in the story. And I think this is where also, if you're looking at this, we, it's so wild because we often interpret this whole book basically as Job's friends would, as like these kind of pithy statements. And then like, look, God ties a neat bow on it. He gives Job things back. And I don't think that's the message. And so we're going to, we're going to talk about like, what, what could God be saying in the midst of this? And so we, we see here that I'm actually going to start a little bit earlier towards the end that this is right after Job's friends come to him in verse 10. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a thousand yoke of oxen, and a thousand donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Kezia, and the third Karen Hepak. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died an old man and full of years. So again, um, we see these particular number of the way that God blessed him in livestock and land and that's 
the exact double number that is given in the beginning of the livestock that died. So we see the particularity of God bringing that wholeness to him. And then the fact that he has 10 children, including three daughters. And again, this speaks so much. You already started to talk about this, Heather, but we often like see the Old Testament in particular, but all of scripture when people have children as if I don't, I think sometimes we remove the humanity of it, but people are still humans. They're still making a choice to give birth. And so for Job and his wife to make the choice to have 10 children after they lost children is in and of itself a picture of them understanding like we are vulnerable to love these children and to bring them into the world. And we are choosing to do that. And it, I think is a picture of the repentance of Job's understanding of God from this formulaic view into this understanding of God who is kind of wild and untamed. And, um, but we, we see it even more in his daughters and I double checked how to pronounce those names and I already have forgotten. So, um, I'm, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I do love the fact that he names these daughters. We've talked a lot about how naming means something to them, that they often would be very intentional in Hebrew culture of like, how do we name this child? What are we going to make this uh, life about? And so the name is kind of also deciding like a way of being for the, the person and Job's daughters are kind of wild in the way that he names them. He names them um, Dove, Cinnamon, and Horn of Eyeshadow. So these kind of pictures of just beauty and extravagance and uh, cinnamon would be like a, a kind of more, we would celebrate that in that culture a little bit more for its fragrance than we probably would in our western culture like it would be more of a beautiful fragrance I think um so there's basically just this celebration of beauty and lavishness in it and so I think that speaks to Job's understanding of who God is now that in in light of his new understanding he is embracing this way of freedom and celebration by saying I'm just gonna name these daughters for the way that I understand life to be, that it models the beauty that God has spoken to him about, this way of understanding creation that's so beautiful and lovely just for the sake of it. And so he kind of does the same thing when he names his daughters, that he just names them these really lovely things for the sake of it. And I think it really does speak to the way that he has begun to understand God. And we also see like, first of all, we don't have the names of the sons. And I think that's important to point out that we know the names of the daughters and we don't know the names of the sons. And that's a huge piece of why we decided to talk about these women, because they are a picture of what 
Job's understanding of God and what God's redemption looks like in Job's life. That this is meant to be a picture of beauty, not of like a replacement, but of a celebration of new life. Yeah, that's so good. I was literally just about to point out the same thing about we don't have the son's names. We don't, we have the number of the sons that there are seven of them. So I think that's what's significant, like what we are to understand about them. Seven is a number of completion. So that is a picture in the sons of God giving him fullness, a restoration, I think. And that for us to know the daughter's names is the important thing that we are to understand is yes, that their names communicate so much about Job's outlook and what he has experienced and how he wants to bless them and what they then represent in their family and then in the earth as well. And I think I hadn't really thought as much about one, the first one seemingly being named Dove. This is, I'm reading into this a little bit. This is a little bit of a stretch. I don't know how much Job intended this, but we see that maybe it's a foreshadow that first of all, it's a representation of hope and peace that after the flood, it's a dove that brings a a sprig of, it's an olive branch um, to the ark to show that the waters have receded. And I think especially as Job connects to the creation account, there's so much in the flood that is essentially a restart of the creation account that the way that we see, there's the same language of the spirit of God the breath of God hovering over the waters to cause the waters to recede and to bring forth a cleansed, renewed earth. Uh, And so a dove then is also just this connection to peace, hope, and the breath of God, the spirit of God. Then of course, most famously, when Jesus is baptized at the Jordan River, the Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove. And so I think that's really significant that Job's first daughter he essentially names for the presence of God and for the peace and hope of God. That's incredible that that's his first essentially offering, I think, um, of she'll be named for the encounter that he has had and for what she represents. And that she, like her presence is a foreshadow of, I think, the coming of the Holy Spirit. As Job has communicated this longing for I know that we need a mediator, we need a redeemer, that he's naming her in the hope of that redeemer will come. Yeah, I love that so much. And I think, like you said, this kind of new creation picture from Noah does speak so clearly to us. Of This is a new creation. This is like the newness of what God's doing in Job's life. And I think that's a beautiful picture of that. And we kind of know very little about these daughters other than that they are very beautiful, which, you know, we don't love knowing only that about women in our culture. And also, I think that means something different in light of Job's understanding of creation and kind of like the, the lack of utility in beauty And so where he once was really understanding like everything in a utilitarian formulaic understanding, now he sees the value of beauty and he sees that beauty for itself is really valuable. And so I think 
this is less of just kind of this like oh job had a consolation prize of more kids and is and they're really pretty by the way like i think it's actually a celebration of job seeing that beauty is valuable that there is something very meaningful to that yeah yeah that's really good exactly and you have you'd already started talking about this jamie but that i think it is so important for us as readers of the book of job and then for us in relationship with one another not to fall into this trap of replacement of just thinking well now it's like it never happened because he just has all his stuff back essentially I think that is a pretty easy default for us which again is kind of formulaic (laughs) um like you lose things and you just tell God you still trust God and then you get your stuff back um that's not at all (laughs) Job's journey or process but we can really default to that as well I think especially for women and parents who have lost a child or women who have had a miscarriage that the, the quick jump can be, well, you can have more, you can have more kids when that's possible. Sometimes that's not possible. Um, but that we just tend to think like, well, you can replace that loss. And then it we can all forget that the loss happened. We can all collectively move on. And that's not honoring at all to people's grief. It's not honoring to a life that didn't get to come into the world or who was lost prematurely. And so I think this is also, we need to be cautious and really slow down with this passage and not jump to, well, God's just replacing the people that are lost so that Job can forget about them. It's those people, those children, and like that season of his life had meaning, have purpose, will be in the new creation. And this restoration is a picture of hope that seasons of loss and confusion, whether that's around human loss or whether that's around loss of other things, you know, could be losses of security, of relationships, of jobs, whatever it might be. We experience losses in many areas and all of those losses can make us feel grief and vulnerability and fear and doubt that this, the story of Job and of these daughters is a reminder that there can be something still on the other side, that our whole lives don't have to be defined by loss and by that fear and doubt, that that, that loss is real and will always be real, and it doesn't have to be our forever story, that there can be something on the other side of that. And we, we actually made the connection between Naomi and Job in our episode about Ruth that that's very much Naomi's story. Hers is actually kind of a mirror image of Job that it feels she loses everything and she sits in that loss and she sits in feeling like her life is over and she keeps going and keeps responding in faith to the Lord and God does then fill her life in a new chapter. And it's not that her the people that she lost didn't matter or didn't exist. It's just that there's more ahead on the other side of that grief. And so I think that's the hope and beauty of this passage and of these daughters and what their names represent and what they show us is loss is real, grief and doubt are real, and God is bigger than only those things. And God can lead us into hope and new seasons in the future.
I love how you said that. And I think the particular example that you gave of miscarriage is such a good one because we do so often try to kind of tie a nice bow around that. And we don't have great ways of sitting with people. And we do often try to function as Job's friends. And so I hope that for women listening that might have that as a part of their story, that they might see a fuller picture in Job's kids, that it's not kind of a replacement, but rather an understanding of the the way that God can move in the midst of grief, that there's, that it's not the end of our story. And we do see that, that Job, it says Job died an old man full of years. And I think, I think that means something, you know, even more than just like, oh, he had a lot of years to live after that. So he didn't care as much, but that he, he died full of life and that he was able to kind of have an experience of life that was not as um, methodical, perhaps, in the way that he understood things. Um, but we also see something significant happen when he died, which is that he gave his daughters an inheritance along with their brothers. And we've talked before about how rare that would be, that that's pretty wild. Like that is certainly speaking to Job understanding that life is unpredictable, that there's a wildness to the ways of God and that he, as a parent, wants to then model that the wildness of God to be so lavish with his resources, to be so extravagant, to give an inheritance to his daughters. And I think that too is part of what makes me say that about us knowing his daughters are beautiful, that it's actually speaking to the value of them because that's, it's tied together that they were very beautiful. And also he gave them an inheritance. And so I think there's something to that that's actually supposed to tell us Job had a, a new understanding of the way of life and the ways of God. And I think the fact that God is intentional to speak to that is teaching us also about the ways of God, that God's heart is to bless God's daughters with an inheritance and that we get to live into that. Yeah. And especially for them being beautiful in that historical time period and somewhat even today, the maybe the most clear utility of being beautiful is that you're marriageable, that it's easy theoretically to, to get a husband. And that's your form of security in the ancient world is marriage. And so I think this is also important that probably they had no problem getting married and they still were deserving of their own inheritance. So it wasn't as though like, well, they'll be destitute if I don't leave them something. It was, they probably have plenty. And because of what they mean to me and to the the world, to society, I want to give them an inheritance. And that I also just think is such a beautiful parallel to the book of numbers. We've talked about that of Zelophehad's daughters, who are these young women who ask the Lord for an inheritance in the future promised land and how there's a similar pattern of coming out of a real season of despair and lack, essentially that they were in the wilderness, that that's that, that season of loss and of 
scarcity causes them to think about what else could be possible and what else could we dream of that's better than what we've experienced before. And so I think it's so interesting that Job is kind of uh, foreshadowing that as well of let's think about new possibilities. Let's dream about new abundance that maybe those around us haven't yet dreamed of, but that after encountering the power of God, that is, it's so inspirational, essentially. It inspires new imagination. So I think that's such a beautiful connection as well to then later the arc of the people of Israel, that in some ways they also follow elements of Job's arc as well. That's so good. And I think you're right. Like there's something about allowing suffering to form us in such a way that it kind of opens our hands to a new way of understanding. And if we let it, it actually does expand our imagination. And so I think that's such an invitation for us as we like think about what it actually means for us to engage the story and kind of draw out some some more meaning for our own lives is like it's not automatic that suffering would do that but opening our hands to what god wants to teach us and how god wants to form us in the midst of suffering means that oftentimes our our imagination expands and we understand the lord in a new way and i think that's such a beautiful invitation for us yeah, exactly. And I think that's such a good point of for us to close on is that very much so suffering and loss can form us in two ways. It can make us hold tighter to things. It can make us kind of close ourselves off to things, or it can, in, when we make our peace with our innate fragility and vulnerability, that it can actually lead us into greater freedom when we accept that and say like, gosh, anything could happen at any time. And so I'm just going to live with gratitude and openness to what God could be doing, that that then opens us up to a real future and a real hope that can extend past some of the loss that we've experienced. That again, we're not saying that those things never happened, but we're allowing God to not let those things define us and not let those things be the only part of our story. So we hope that this causes you to think with imagination and hope for your own future, for what could yet be part of further chapters in your story. And we hope that this has encouraged you as you have uncovered your place in God's story. So please do subscribe to the podcast so you're always getting new episodes. Please follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We always love to hear from you. We also have a Patreon community that we would love for you to join. All of those things you can find in our show notes. Thanks for digging in with us today.